you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Our authority who joins us today from UC San Francisco is infectious disease specialist Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's professor of medicine at UCSF and also directs the UCSF Center for AIDS Research. Dr. Gandhi, a very good morning to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate your being with us. So um, let's talk, first of all, just about where we are with the Omicron variant at this point. Some of the models I know uh, indicate this could be the peak week for the variant, then with several weeks more where we see elevated cases as it declines. What's your analysis of where we're at? Yes, I agree with that, what you just said, because essentially we can model from South Africa and the UK. And then there was a group that put a paper together modeling all the Omicron surges across the world that essentially after it starts in a region, it takes about 30 to 40 days to peak and then it will come down. And we're right at that point. Um, And we know the wastewater data last week showed us that COVID was coming down in wastewater in California, and that usually um, proceeds by about a week. Cases coming down, cases have rounded the corner now as of this week, just just yesterday really, and and they should continue to come down. How long will it take to come down? Maybe four weeks likely, and I think we're looking at mid to third week of February for this to be us to be in a good place. And where do things stand at UCSF Medical Center uh, at at this point? Are are you um, are you seeing the hospital with a capacity issue at all and staffing issues with a lot of people calling in sick? Yes, I mean, it, it, when you're in the transition from a pandemic to an endemic stage of a virus, which I think we are, we're still using pandemic ways to try to manage the virus. And so that means that if you've been exposed to COVID or you um, uh, have COVID, you need to not be in the hospital. And so that is absolutely has been led to hospital staffing shortages across the country, not just California, and but it's certainly happening here at UCSF. In terms of the hospitalizations, the difference between now and last year is really the number of hospitalizations that are with COVID instead of for COVID, all that means is that we screen everyone who comes into the hospital for COVID because we have to, then we'll put them in a separate room, isolate, we'll think about different forms of PPE for ourselves. But all of that means that about, at least Marin County's estimating 
that about 50% of patients um, are there for just COVID in the nose, but for there for another reason. And that's important. That didn't happen last year, um, this time last year. I think LA County estimated 67%. So that put all together, it's not the problem that we're having with hospitals is, is really a lot of staffing. Well, and, and let's talk about the move from pandemic to endemic that you just raised. What does that mean? And, and beyond the terminology, what does that look like to us in our daily lives? Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, terminology means that a pandemic is, of course, a stage of a viral pathogen or virus in this case, where it causes incredible strain on society, uh, hospitalizations, and also society is affected in every way. We've had closures, we've had mass distancing, everyone's changed their life for the last two years. And um, uh, the pandemic phase goes into what's called the endemic phase or controlled phase phase when there is no longer that strain on society, when hospitalizations are manageable and we know how to treat it. And one big part of endemicity, I would say, with modern modern uh, pandemics is having treatments. And so why do we think that Omicron's pushing us into endemicity? Why does this keep on being said, said by many people? Um, I, I think it's because it is the most infectious variant so far. There's actually an estimate that 50% of people in this world have been exposed to Omicron. That's pretty astounding. Um, about 50% in Europe, that has been estimated here. Um, there was one estimate that at least one out of four Americans have been exposed but are asymptomatic. What is exposure to a highly transmissible respiratory variant, especially if it's more mild, so you don't even feel it in some cases, I said a fourth or asymptomatic, um, due to you? Well, what it does to your immune system is it allows you to see the whole virus. We, of course, as vaccinated individuals, saw part of the virus. We saw the spike protein of the virus in this country because those are the only vaccines we have. So the spike protein, this disease, you now see the entire virus. You develop broad neutralizing antibodies and what are called T cells across the entire virus. And so if another variant comes along, you hopefully have all the immunity that you need for that other variant. And it also just builds a huge amount of immunity in the population, even those who are unvaccinated. And that's really, at least in 1918, what drove the 1918 influenza pandemic into endemicity where influenza became a seasonal thing that we all deal with, but it didn't affect our lives. Um, and that that was likely a more milder variant and certainly just the population getting more and more immunity. So I, I, I think it is going to drive us to what's called intimacy. And then what will that look like in our regular lives? It will our regular lives will actually look a lot like our regular lives look like in 2019, um, because what we'll do is influenza like it will be treated like influenza. And what does that mean? Well, that means that we'll always vaccinate, we'll always encourage people to vaccinate. We'll keep on working on the childhood vaccine six months to four years, which I have an idea about. And um, and we'll always vaccinate people who don't want to vaccinate yet. We'll keep on yeah. encouraging. We have therapeutics. We have uh, for those who are at risk for severe breakthroughs or remain unvaccinated. We have oral therapeutics. We don't have them at the supply that we needed them in winter of 2021. But the one that we really love is Paxlovid because it's a oral antiviral that you can give for five days. And we'll always have that on hand for anyone who's at risk for a severe breakthrough. We'll say, do you have flu? Do you have COVID? Do you have RSV? And we'll give them the appropriate treatment. Um, COVID or flu. So does, that, does, does this mean, though, that essentially, because we live with a number of endemic uh, threats, uh, that we get back to a more normal sort of a life when we come to terms with this? Yes. If we accept endemicity, which UK did yesterday, for example, they said no more masks, no more mask mandates. Of course, anyone 
is welcome to mask. And while a virus is still circulating, high-risk individuals should wear good masks indoors, but they released all mask mandates yesterday, including for children. And they are no longer going to, in a, they said that they're no longer to do asymptomatic testing, which is a big part of pandemic management versus um, endemic management. We don't asymptomatically test for flu. So we'll eventually phase out asymptomatic testing. Harvard said they're doing that in the fall, at their, sorry, spring in their school starting to do that in California, in schools. And then and then you live, yes, you live with normal life. What will change? I think we'll pay more attention to ventilation in buildings. And I do think we'll pay more attention to masks. Anyone who's at high risk or just does not want any exposure in the winter will probably mask in the winter indoors and we'll tell them the right type of mask to wear. But yeah, otherwise life goes back to normal. So what would potentially upend this is if a new variant arises that is far more lethal than Omicron, right? That would that would upset this. That would upset this. But the one thing that I wanted to really stress is if you saw Omicron, you now have developed um, T-cell immunity, broad neutralizing amount antibodies against the entire virus. So say we have a virus that's a variant and has 75 mutations. You develop 1,400 T-cells when you see a virus. So um, that's work from LA, and sorry, San Diego uh, Immunology Center. So you will have enough immunity to protect you against any variant if you've seen the virus. Now, I'm not encouraging people to see the virus, but a lot of people have seen the virus. In fact, Dr. Fauci thinks everyone's going to be exposed to Omicron. I don't know if everyone's going to be, but if you haven't seen it, for instance, I haven't happened to see the virus because I'm on service, so I'm being really careful. Um, I will, uh, there is one other possibility to get us to, to, to help us if another variant arises, which is the Covaxin vaccine is a whole inactivated variant. It lets you see the whole virus through a vaccine. And it's been pending at the FDA for about 80 days now. And we were really pushing the FDA say, saying, please approve that because not only is it approved down to two, but it allows you to see the whole virus so that if a variant arises that our spike protein vaccines are resistant to, that's okay. We have immunity against the whole virus. Wow. I, I didn't even realize that that had been under review at the FDA. So, what's your theory? It's a little on, frustrating. Yeah, what's your theory on <laughs> what's your theory on the delay? Because obviously, we saw with Pfizer, Moderna, J and J, those come through really fast. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm a little frustrated with this um, for two reasons. One is that it goes down to the age of two. So there are many parents who are like, why am I left out for when I have a six-month to two-year-old, four-year-old? Absolutely right. And by the way, I have another theory for the six-month to two-year-olds. The Pfizer trial showed that six months to two-year-olds did work. It's just the two to four-year-olds didn't work, didn't mount the right immune response. So we could right now approve Pfizer teeny dose for six months to two-year-olds and then approve the Covaxin from two-year-old onward. So I think we could have a childhood vaccine like tomorrow if the FDA would just look at it. Why are they not looking at it? Frankly, um, Dr. Fauci was asked and he said, oh, we have plenty of vaccines. And I don't, this I'm going to say, I, I have to disagree with Dr. Fauci on this one. Uh, their mRNA vaccine, um, there's some hesitancy to it. I'm not saying it's not from misinformation. It is from misinformation, but there's hesitancy. I think there are people who'd want the whole inactivated variant vaccine. It looks a lot like a vaccine that we've heard about in the past because it's a more traditional design. And then it could go down to two. And then the third reason is you get to see the whole virus. So I'm going to be honest, like I haven't ever seen the whole virus. When I go to India this uh, this uh, uh, summer, I'm going to see the whole virus by getting a Covaxin vaccine. That's where it was made. So they're, uh, okay, they offer it. And in their trials, what is the percentage effectiveness, the efficacy of it? Excellent. So it's um, been given out in 180 million people so far. So um, almost as much as the, the mRNA vaccines in this country. And it's really a, 
widespread because of course India has a lot of people. Um, it is uh, it is um, seventy eight percent effective in the clinical trials against symptomatic infection, but importantly, just like the mRNA vaccines, it's 93.4% effective against severe disease. And that's what you care about. And that's, um, so it's very high effectiveness. It looks great. It's been approved by the WHO. It's just sitting on the FDA's desk. We're talking with UCSF Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Monica Gandhi. She directs UCSF Center for AIDS Research as well. And we're talking with her about the latest in COVID-19 and learning a lot this morning. We're at 866-893-KPECC. You can also email us with your question for Dr. Gandhi at uh, atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and your location. Tanya in Mar Vista says our kid goes to school in person in the LA Unified School District. The teacher has been asking the entire class by a show of hands who's vaccinated and who's not. We're all vaccinated in my family, but it feels slightly inappropriate. Are they allowed to ask that? Dr. Gandhi, you, you'd be uh, much better on California and HIPAA federal laws, but that I mean, sounds to me like when schools have to uh, get information about the vaccination status, they're supposed to keep that private, I thought. That is absolutely not allowable. That is uh, a violation, the likes of which I've not heard for a while. Um, you know, the, vac- the, the the childhood vaccine, which I encourage for all parents, and you just said that 5 to 11-year-olds all were vaccinated in that class, is still under EUA. What that means is it's still under emergency use authorization, and it hasn't been fully approved. And there are some parents who want that full approval before they give it or they want more safety data. And that's fair, that is their prerogative. And um, even if it was fully approved, you can't ask the vaccination status. Uh, so I would I would go to probably the head of school um, there and, and, and report this. Robin in West Hollywood says, um, uh, uh, from Harvard, Dr. Jeremy Faust said on PBS NewsHour January 15th that only older and vulnerable populations need to get boosters. Uh, wants to know what you think of that. Well... I think he's right, and I'll explain what happened with the booster conversation. So essentially, there was a hope uh, when Omicron came, and even right before, that if we boosted everyone, we could decrease transmission of a new variant. Now, we don't actually mount the antibodies if you're young and healthy that still get you over the possibility of Omicron. I think we've seen again and again the vaccinated boosted people can get mild infection with Omicron because what a booster does is it temporarily increases your antibodies. There was a UK study that showed about 10 weeks, um, but then after that, they just go right back down. But what do the two-dose vaccines do? They're amazing. They create in most individuals, and then I'll talk about exceptions, um, what's called strong T cell immunity, B cell immunity. They last, they last a lifetime, by the way, um, by the, you know, B cells from influenza, uh, influenza in 1918, they took 90 to hundred year olds, found them, found them 90 years later, and they still had B cells against the influenza virus. If they sat in 1918, T cells, we know last 40 years after a measles vaccine, for example. So these are, these are cells that last a long time. And so they, you still have those and from your vaccine, and then you produce antibodies if you see a variant in the future. And by the way, you produce antibodies directed against that variant. So that's another exciting thing about adaptive immunity. Now, who are the people who likely need a booster? I mean, it's too late. We, we, we said everyone, but 
if you if you haven't gotten it, this is who I really think needs a booster. There was a very large CDC study that I would want everyone to read because I think it gives you such security in the, in the safety and effectiveness of two-dose vaccines. It's published in MMWR in January 7th. It just starts with risk factors for severe COVID outcomes. And you just put that in CDC, Google, and you can read it. It basically shows us that the people who are at risk for severe breakthroughs, um, those who don't get that effectiveness from the two-dose vaccines, um, by the way, the effectiveness in the majority of individuals was 0. 0.00003. That's four zeros and then a three. That's your chance of dying from COVID if you've gotten vaccinated with two-dose vaccines. And then that rare percentage of the population who needs, a, who needs the booster because they weren't able to get that great, as great of immune response are absolutely immunocompromised individuals. In fact, they likely need a fourth dose. And then those who are older with comorbidities. So in this study, at least, it was those who were 75, over 75 with four comorbidities that were risk for severe COVID. But I would still say anyone over 65 absolutely needs a booster. Why not? It's important. It's, it's, it, it, it will um, increase your T and B cell immunity. And I, I absolutely think that's the right population. And then anyone with multiple medical conditions, and then anyone who's immunocompromised, the original categories that the FDA and CDC gave us. Now, we, we recommend, though, flu shots essentially for all adults during flu season just to try and avoid a flu, which likely isn't going to be lethal for a 30-year-old. Why not recommend a booster for a healthy 30-year-old if it means it's less likely she's going to be sick a week with COVID? So that's a great question. Um, and we're going to have to determine that on a yearly basis. But I will tell you a couple of reasons why not. The flu vaccine is modified every year. Um, it'd be kind of like, like modifying the the. COVID vaccine and giving a different one every year. But please remember, it's not the same flu vaccine because what happens is two spike proteins stick out of the, we certainly know the word spike protein now. One spike protein sticks out of COVID, but two stick out of flu. It's called the H and the N. That's why it's like H1N1 or H9N9. And so we, the vaccine is updated with the circulating flu strains that year. And that's why you get a boost. That's why you get a flu shot every year. What if we keep on giving boosters with the same COVID vaccine every year, there's something called original antigenic sin. <laughs> Sorry to use really? that phrase. And what that means is that you're seeing the same ancestral um, coding of the spike protein again and again. And your immune system actually gets trained to develop T cells and to recognize the older strain. And it doesn't allow you to have adaptive immunity to what, what's circulating at the time. So that original antigenic sin is why the European Medical uh, Agency, which is actually our CDC equivalent, has said that they're not going to be giving boosters or a fourth shot to the majority of individuals. And in this country, four shots are only recommended for severely immunocompromised. So not even, you can yeah. be over-vaccinated. It is possible. You can be over-vaccinated. Flu is an absolute exception because it's changed every year. That's why. That's the difference. Wow. Rafael in Altadena said, this is a great conversation, but it seems like a, a boomerang arc. Early on, there were a lot of people talking about being exposed to the virus in order to be protected, but the medical community pushed back, saying that that wasn't good enough. You needed to be vaccinated to get more long-lasting coverage. So what has changed to where being exposed to the whole virus is something Something now considered to be good. Okay, well, let me clarify that. So um, it is not that it's good in the sense that a medical community is never going to 
um, suggests that you get an infection unless, for example, there was no smallpox vaccine when we were all, well, some of us were kids. <laughs> I'm, I'm old to have been rubbed against someone who had smallpox, so I could get smallpox. But, um, and I think some of us remember that. But if there's a vaccine for a virus, you know, that is absolutely the safest way to go. And that is why we really waited for the vaccine to, um, you know, get excited that we could get in control of the pandemic. On the other hand, and I think this is very important, there was a study yesterday that the CDC released that shows us pretty definitively, and, and I'm going to actually tell you the name of the study so that everyone can look it up, um, that uh, that having ex- being exposed to natural, you know, it, having gotten recovered from immunity, recovered from the virus, is actually more protective, at, even all the way through the Delta surge and beyond, than getting vaccinated. And um, the reason that's a deviation from the CDC is that uh, it was a very large study. It was across New York and California. They, it's probably the most definitive and largest study that shows that um, recovery from infection is, is frankly more protective than getting against getting infected and also against getting hospitalized um, than getting two doses of the vaccine. They also compared it to people who had been originally recovered and then got one dose of the vaccine and it still still infection trumped it all. So why is that important? Well, it's important because every European country has recognized this, that natural immunity from a severe viral infection does give you long lasting immunity. It was a strange thing that the country didn't recognize it. Only the United States didn't. Again, I have to stress that every other European country, you can go into a restaurant if they're using vaccine passports with your um, with your proof that you've had COVID or that you've had the vaccine. In fact, Switzerland, um, you go out 365 days and then they'll decide if, if you need to be vaccinated. So it, it's fair that the CDC finally kind of admitted that just yesterday. Well, it, it's it's what's so odd, though, is that we've been hearing from our health experts who said that it appeared that after a three month period of time, antibodies declined sufficiently from those who had had an infection of covid that um, they would be vulnerable to it again. And, you know, we've had many listeners who have had covid multiple times. Um, I have a friend who's, who's gotten it twice a month apart. So and then when you look at at what we we're told about the lasting effect of the antibodies from the vaccines of five or six months, that seems to be a fairly significant difference. So what was were the measurements wrong previously? What happened? No, it's because we failed to um, provide nuanced messaging on the immune system and to just really briefly explain it. Antibodies are one arm of the immune system and they don't last that long because your whole body cannot be stuffed with the protein of all the antibodies you've ever seen. They naturally decline with time, but there's a blueprint. There's a map. There's always a cell called B cells aided by T cells that can make more antibodies in the future. If you see the virus again, however, it's going to take a few days for you to make those antibodies and for your T cells to kick in as well. And because of that, you may get a mild infection in the upper respiratory tract with the same virus again and again. But what the vaccines do admirably and amazingly well is protect you against severe disease, but they do not protect you against mild infections all the time if a virus is still circulating. That's the shift we've had to make as we've seen the different variants. And so that is terribly important to remember that it doesn't mean it's a vaccine failure and nor does it mean that you're not protected in the future against other variants, especially if you've seen the whole virus, either through Covaxin or or Omicron. 
um, you're going to be protected from your T cells and B cells against other variants. Well, and and this plays into uh, a listener question we have from Eric in Pomona. So wondering, uh, is there a way of testing B and T cells to determine at what level they're ready to defend against COVID? Well, that's an excellent question. And the reason you hear so much more about antibodies, by the way, is they're super easy to measure and T and B cells are simply not. And so because of that, we have done these, we have some lab labs here that are very nicely, kindly have done T-cell studies for us and shown some very nice T-cell responses, even in immunocompromised patients. Um, but there isn't really a commercial commercial test. There's one called T-spot that I've seen on, um, on, on, on the internet, but I I'm honestly can't, I can't verify if it, if it works. All right. Uh, Our, we have, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Fancy labs. Uh, We have breaking news. Austria's parliament has approved Europe's first COVID-19 vaccine mandate for adults. The mandate goes into effect February 1st. Dr. Gandhi, what do you think of Austria taking that step? Yes. um, uh, So that's a it's a it's a it's a very great question. So I actually definitely supported vaccine mandates. Um, but as you know, this and, and why did I support it? Not because vaccines decrease transmission, because with each successive variant, they're less likely to. They do decrease it, but they don't block it. Um, but it, severe disease is is just completely related to your vaccination status. I can tell you I work in a hospital. It's the unvaccinated, unfortunately, who, who mostly died uh, since we've had the vaccines, uh, unvaccinated adults. And so I, I did support vaccine mandates, but as you know, our Supreme Court um, uh, did reject uh, the vaccine mandate for everyone and they only approved it for healthcare workers. So I think at this point, our country is not gonna go that route. Okay. Uh, let's see. We have a question uh, from Tom and Tustin. I just heard uh, Dr. Gandhi say only people 65 or older or immunocompromised need a booster. I've been operating under the idea that fully vaccinated meant I need a booster shot. Can you elaborate on what being fully vaccinated means right now? Well, as you can tell, the booster conversation played out really um, kind of vocally and there were public health, for example, yesterday, the WHO just said there's no reason for a booster in children or adolescents, um, but here all the way down to 12. Um, it's, it's, it's a great matter of debate and question in the scientific community, which is why you've seen people be so vociferous about their positions. I, Paul Offit is someone that I follow closely because he's a longstanding vaccinologist and he's the one who really thinks it should occur for older people, people with medical conditions and people with immunocompromise. Actually, the CDC has not updated their definition of fully vaccinated to include a booster. They were very careful in a way, I think, not to do that. So even though California may have different rules, the CDC says fully vaccinated is the two-dose vaccines. Catherine in Aldadina says, I have two fully vaccinated kids who are required to get the booster for college by February. One got boosted, but then they both got COVID over their winter break. Is there any sense in for the one who got COVID to also get a booster now? No, in fact, the one who got COVID got the best booster of all. And there was a really nice um, uh, study that showed us that, again, if you get Omicron infection on top of two vaccines, that you get broad neutralizing antibodies that work and T cells that work against alpha, beta, delta, all the variants. So, um, you know, I would write a letter to the college saying um, that you heard this program. And uh, (laughs) I I 
Which is always good to say. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be happy to send you the paper why that's a natural booster. All right. Uh, I want to ask you before we close, um, because I find this so fascinating, the gender differences where men are more likely to die of COVID than women. And there have been a lot of speculation about the potential causes. Do you have your own theories about what's at play? Yes. You know, I I really delved deep into that once for a talk. And um, it likely is not biologic, actually. It's likely just like social determinants of health uh, really determine a lot of how we respond to infectious diseases. It likely has to do with um, risk factors and being in the workforce in some organizations, meat processing plants. Um, it was it was really the, the the differential risks that ended up happening more at the beginning. Um, there is women do in general cisgender women do tend to get better immune responses to vaccines. That's just always true. It has to do with our estrogen, but um, but it, it really isn't a biological phenomenon. And, and we always have to be wary when these things come out. This happened a lot with HIV as well, thinking, oh, women can't get HIV early on in the pandemic because we saw it so much in men who have sex with men here. Absolutely not true. In fact, over 50% of the infections are in women. So it was kind of an epidemiologic um, occurrence from social determinants. Well, we do die earlier. So I was wondering if it was somehow related that we're just generally more fragile. You don't have as good immune responses. I'm really sorry to tell you that. I mean, that's actually true. Women have better immune responses to vaccines. It's been shown across the board. Um, and that is actually true also, unfortunately, the other way of autoimmune diseases. Women are more likely to have autoimmune diseases because of some of the effects of estrogen on the immune system. So, um, but we're good. We're good with our immunity. Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. Really appreciate your spending this time with us today and have a very good rest of the week. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.